Good morning, everybody. Yeah, we've had some smaller groups in our adult class because we have about 50 people down in the basement for our newcomer class. So uh, we're a little bit lopsided, but that's okay. We're going to keep plowing through uh, these various books of the Bible. So let me pray. And you who are here, we will jump into the Song of Solomon this morning. Father, thank you for uh, just the joy it is to gather with your people and the privilege it is to, um, to be able to possess and treasure and study your word. Your word is life, it is light, it is truth. I pray that we would see it rightly today, that we would approach uh, your word with a proper reverence and with an eagerness to understand and believe and obey all that it reveals. So I pray that you would help me and speak to us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So today uh, brings us to the Song of Solomon. You can go ahead and turn there. And approaching a book like this, you might wonder, why is this book in the Bible? Why is this book, the Song of Solomon, with its unique subject matter, its poetic nature, its vivid language, what are we to make of this book? Um, one Jewish, uh, medieval Jewish commentator wrote that the Song of Solomon is a lock to which the key has been lost. He felt that it was so difficult to interpret and understand this book. There's several challenges to reading and interpreting the Song of Solomon. The first challenge would be simply the subject matter. Um, I, I'm assuming, and maybe wrongly assuming, but assuming most of you have at some point read the Song of Solomon. And it's interesting, in uh, ancient times, only men that were either 30 years old or already married were allowed to study and read the Song of Solomon. They felt that this book was almost, I guess you could say, too hot to handle or something like that. But the subject matter, because of the, uh, the vividness and, and the, the honesty about love and desire and pleasure and romance, you had to either be 30 or already married if you were a man to read this book. Another difficulty to reading and interpreting this book is the language. If you were to look at the Hebrew text of this book, there's over 40 words found in the Song of Solomon that are only found in the Song of Solomon. So they're not words that are common to the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, there's strange imagery to our cultural context. Just the, the language and the imagery is something that can be a challenge for us to interpret. I believe the structure of the Song of Solomon also makes it kind of difficult to read and rightly interpret. Who's talking to who? And when is this going on? Is this before the wedding or is this during this, the, the marriage feast? Is this after? It can be hard to get the characters and the timeline straightened out. And because it's a song, because it's not a strict narrative like you might find in 1 Kings, there's fewer details to help us locate characters and timeline and things like that. Rather, this song consists of an emphasis on feelings and emotions, expressions of both longing and delight. So that can make it difficult. Um, another difficulty in reading and interpreting this book is our presuppositions. We all bring presuppositions to the text. Some people cannot imagine a book in the Bible talking about the sexual relationship of a man and a woman. And on the flip side, some people approach this book and they can only see it being about sex in sort of a junior high sort of a way, sort of a locker room humor where everything is innuendo and they overread things that are in the text. But this book is in the Bible and we believe what Scripture tells us about itself, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. That includes the Song of Solomon. Profitable for teaching and reproof and correction, training in righteousness. So this book is for our good. It reveals to us something about God. 
And this book is intended to shape our lives. So because of that, even though there's all these various difficulties we've listed to reading and interpreting the Song of Solomon, we want to dive into it today. Let's look at the title. The Song of Solomon is what it has in my, at the top of the page in my Bible. Some of yours might have Song of Songs, and that's a great title as well. Historically, that was the more common title. And that's a superlative. It's sort of like saying the King of Kings. It's the one that's above all the rest, and this song is truly like that. Now, the setting and the time period for the composition of this book was during the United Kingdom of the 10th century before Christ. So this is before the kingdom of Israel split into Judah and Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms. Uh, this was, and that happened under the rule of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. That was in 922. So this appears to be written before that. There's references to Solomon, and it seems to be a time of great peace and plenty. As you read through Song of Solomon, you see all this language about the abundance of spices and, and flocks. There's agricultural imagery galore. There's a bountiful, plenteous uh, atmosphere in this book. And that very much fits the, the reign, the time of Solomon, when the kingdom of Israel was at its greatest extent and at its highest level of prosperity. There's also a lot of references to Solomon, so that helps us nail down the, the rough time period. Now, there's a few different views about the authorship and the occasion of this book. Who wrote it, and why did they write it? Well, you could see this book as written by Solomon, personally, about his first marriage, or maybe one of his other marriages. He had a few to, to understate it. So that's one view. It could be written by Solomon, and he could have written this potentially as a young man who was uh, preparing for this wedding, or... Another view is that Solomon wrote this as an old man who's looking back in his old age and recognizing, realizing the goodness of what he once had. And so if you take this view of, of it being written by Solomon, there's sort of a united narrative that traces the various stages of the relationship as the stage of desire, then consummation, and then a life that's shared together. Some hold that it's written by an anonymous individual who's not Solomon, but it's dedicated to Solomon. Uh, perhaps written around the time of his wedding as, as a song that would be sung and celebrated as part of the festival, as part of the festivities of the marriage feast. So that's one view, is that there's a, a single author, whether Solomon or an anonymous author, uh, anonymous author uh, who, who writes uh, this unified narrative about Solomon's relationship with um, a particular woman. But there's a second view, a second view of authorship, which I'm sympathetic towards, and there's not one that's clearly right or wrong, but I sort of lean this other direction. And you can also view the Song of Solomon as a collection of various songs, a collection of songs that were written for the royal wedding. You think about how big of a deal the royal weddings are today. I don't follow that stuff or get very into it, but whenever stuff happens across the pond you know, with the royal family, it seems that everybody's paying attention. There's all of this fanfare. There's this, it's very special. When the king of Israel, Israel was getting married, it would have similarly been a very big deal. And so I think it's possible to view this book as sort of a playlist for Solomon's wedding. So it could be a compilation of different songs. They were even by different, different authors at different times. And stringing it together gives sort of, it's sort of like a country western, you know, greatest hits of the 80s or something like that. Like this is a, could be a compilation of songs in that sense. Um, by those who admired Solomon, you know, putting all of it together. We know that in 1 Kings 4.32, it says that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. 
So these could have been even various songs written by Solomon that were compiled into one at some point. We really don't know. Um, and and I'll, I'll show you sort of the, the benefit of why I take that composition view rather than the single narrative view in a moment. But either one is, is really fine and, and permissible. Um, the genre of the Song of Solomon is that it is poetic wisdom literature. It's poetic. It is a song. It is meant to be sung. And I think this is one reason why it's hard to interpret everything in the book with a great deal of specificity. Because if you explain the punchline of a joke, it sort of loses its humor, right? And, and poetry is like that. And, and some people approach this book trying to overly explain all the details in a way that actually robs the song of its artistic beauty. So we don't want to do that with the metaphors. We don't want to do that with even the structure of the Song of Solomon because there's supposed to be this impact it has that, that as it resonates with our emotions and our longings, as it paints this flowing picture of love and joy and desire and beauty and pleasure. And those things can't always be analyzed and explained like a math equation. How do you quantify love? How do you quantify or, or, or explain longing, desire, pleasure? Only art can capture that kind of beauty. And so that's what we've been given, is this beautiful, poetic song. It is a song. It's poetic. That's the genre. But it's also wisdom literature. Again, this comes in, in our Bibles right next to Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. It is wisdom. It is meant to show us a way of living that recognizes the truth of God and that submits to the will of God and reflects the character of God. That's what wisdom is. It's a way of living that recognizes God's truth, submits to God's will, and reflects God's character. Wisdom is meant to be applied to life, all areas of life. And that even includes romantic relationships. That includes marriage. It even includes sexual intimacy. Wisdom, God's wisdom, applies. There's no corner of our life, there's no aspect of our experience where God's wisdom is sort of in a different category, and this is just something human that we figure out. So it is wisdom literature, it is poetry, it's a song. So let's talk about the theme of the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is about the goodness and glory of one of God's greatest gifts to his creatures. It's about human love, marriage, desire, sexual intimacy, and all of its joys and pleasures. The little phrase, my beloved, occurs 24 times in the Song of Solomon. My beloved, my beloved, over and over and over again. It's very clearly the theme. But the question is, how should we interpret it? How should we interpret the Song of Solomon? Well, there's been a variety of approaches throughout history. I want to just share with you a few of those approaches to interpretation. And one approach to interpreting the Song of Solomon has been the allegorical approach. And again, in, in previous points in church history, this was the dominant uh, manner of interpreting the Song of Solomon. We see it in the church fathers. We see it in... Uh, some of the reformers, we see it in the Puritans. So the question is, does the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, is this a metaphor that's meant to be describing the relationship between God and his people, the love of Christ for the church? Is this supposed to point to that? Well, that metaphor is not illegitimate. Again, if we look in Scripture, we see that connection all the time. Hosea's marriage offered a picture of God's faithful love to faithless Israel. We see in the New Testament that Paul teaches us, he teaches in Ephesians, that marriage is to reflect Christ's love for the church and even to be a living portrait of it. 
Uh, We even see in the book of Revelation that the final destination for God's people is this marriage supper where Christ is described as the groom and we're all invited to the party as recipients of his love. So the marriage theme throughout scripture as sort of a portrait of, of God's love for his people, Christ's love for the church, that is a very legitimate metaphor. But in Hosea and Ephesians, the text itself makes that connection explicitly clear. But there's no such evidence in the Song of Songs. The text rather includes real names of people and places, names like Solomon and Tirzah, places like Lebanon and Jerusalem. So it lacks some of the features of the the simple allegorical metaphor we see in other places in Scripture. It also lacks the clear narrative storyline that one typically finds in allegory. And if we go beyond that, if you want to take Song of Solomon as a metaphor about Jesus in the church, it's going to get a little bit awkward for you. I don't know if you've ever read this book through that lens. But issues arise when we consider the somewhat erotic description of the groom in chapter 5, verses 10 through 16 don't have to read it all right now, but you can look at it. I'll just ask you to read that and then answer the question, is this the language of worship for Jesus? Because if it is, we need to write some better hymns. Because this, is, this does not seem to be the language of worship for our Savior. It seems to fit, rather, a very happy marriage. But that does not mean that the Song of Solomon, um, or, or rather, let me back up just a second. When you look at passages like this in the book, chapter 5, verses 10 through 16, it seems to be talking about marriage. I will grant that marriage is about the love of Christ for the church, but that doesn't mean that the Song of Solomon is about the love of Christ and the church. There's sort of a few dominoes in between. And so I don't think it's helpful to try to map the details of this book in a one-to-one sense onto the spiritual realities that we enjoy in Christ. Um, I'm not a a math major, but my wife is, and there's something important called order of operations if you're going to solve a a big problem. And I think that when people try to map the Song of Solomon directly onto our relationship with Christ and the church, they're kind of doing things out of order. The Song of Solomon, I'm convinced, is about human marriage and love and the joy of that. And human marriage and love and the joy that we experience there, that is a picture of Christ and the church. But We need to follow that order of operations correctly. In addition, as we read through the Song of Solomon, the roles that we find these characters playing don't clearly and cleanly fit the relationship between Christ and the church. For example, um, very often in the Song of Solomon, the female character is more aggressive in her pursuit than the male character. She's running out into the streets to seek him, for example. And this hardly describes the interactions between Christ and the church. He's the one who seeks us before we love him, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. There's also missing elements in the Song of Solomon. If this were about Christ and the church, about God and his people, you would expect to find elements of sacrifice and forgiveness and atonement and faith or repentance. All of those are key aspects of our relationship with God, but there's nothing in this book that even allegorically points us to those truths. Beyond that, as a methodology in general, not just in the Song of Songs, the allegorical approach to interpreting Scripture has a lot of weaknesses. Meaning tends to be arbitrarily assigned by the interpreter. So if we take this view of allegory, and let's just randomly jump down into uh, chapter 2, verse 15. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. 
If we're going to take this as an allegory, who gets to decide what the foxes are, what the vineyard is, and what it means to be spoiled? You could ask three different people and get five different interpretations of that. That's the, the difficulty with, with allegory as a method. There's no controls. People see what they want to see, which leads to a plethora of suggested meanings, and it actually tends to obscure the truth rather than revealing it. So although the allegorical approach to Song of Solomon has had strong support in the church all the way since the days of Origen and some of the early church fathers, I think it's best to understand this text the way we try to read every text in the Bible, the simple, straightforward, literal meaning, to understand it in its natural sense. And when we do that, we come to understand this song as God's unambiguous blessing on the joys of human love. This is a book about marriage and its pleasures, plain and simple. And as such, I believe the Song of Songs has much value for the church today as we combat a distorted vision of sexuality and marriage in our culture. We need this book. I think it can be helpful to even view this book as a sort of commentary on Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 gives us the institution of marriage and it takes place in a garden. Again, in, in Song of Solomon, as you read throughout this book, you will see an abundance of garden imagery. Fruit and flowers and spices, harvest, eating and feasting. There's all of this garden language. Well, God instituted marriage in the garden. He created the man, and then he created the woman from the man and gave her to Adam. And what did Adam do? What did Adam do when he first saw his wife? He bursts into song, right? He bursts into song. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And Moses comments, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Naked and unashamed. One flesh. I think in many ways we see in the Song of Songs the ideal of what marital love is supposed to be, unstained by sin, unstained by shame, unstained by selfishness. Derek Kidner in his wonderful little commentary on Genesis comments that when Adam and Eve sinned, to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. What has ruined marriage is sin. And we know that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden because of their sin. Well, in the Song of Solomon, we find re-entrance into the garden. We find the enjoyment of marriage as it was meant to be. This is God's intention for his creatures, and it is good, and it is holy. Marriage is holy. So I think the allegorical approach falls short. But there's also another ditch people fall into when seeking to interpret um, the Song of Solomon. Some people swing the pendulum away from maybe a uh, spiritualizing and allegorizing of the book, and they swing the pendulum, and they see the Song of Solomon as some sort of sex manual, uh, like a how-to book that should be mined for practical tips, or that somehow authorizes certain behaviors in the bedroom. But this approach makes everything sexual and I think reads into the Song of Solomon things that actually aren't there. This is like locker room humor where everything that is said can somehow be spun into innuendo. And I think this is also wrong for a few reasons. One is that it misses the point of how this book was written and the format at which it is given to us. This book is often veiled and discreet in its descriptions of marital intimacy. It is not crude. It is not coarse. It is not clinical. 
It is not in any way exploitative. It is not intended to arouse. Rather, it uses poetry and metaphor in order to preserve and veil the sacredness of the marriage bed. This is not some trashy romance novel. It is beautiful, it is holy, and it radiates this, uh, this, this nobility that I think some people miss when they come to this book and, and they read their own sort of perverted sense of humor into the Song of Solomon. This shallow and worldly approach I think also ignores the deeper meaning of sex and marriage, a meaning that emerges throughout the unfolding of the whole Bible of which Song of Solomon is part. While, yes, we don't think that this is a metaphor of Christ and the church, it is a poetic description of marriage, and marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. So while we shouldn't read this as an allegory, don't forget that what makes marriage holy, what makes marriage sacred, is what it signifies, which is God's love for his people. Marriage emerges as the first social institution in the garden, becomes the metaphor, God's love for us. It's interesting, Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding, as he changes water into wine. And again, in Revelation, all of history is moving towards the marriage supper of the Lamb. So marriage is meant to give us a category for understanding God's love. So we should look for aspects of God's character in the love that we see in the Song of Solomon. Rather than looking for tips and tricks and, and things that apply in an overly sexual sense. As we learn about the depth of longing, the thrill of desire, the pleasure of embrace in the Song of Songs, it should teach us about the good and beautiful gift of marriage that's a blessing to all of mankind. And, and it should deepen our appreciation for God's gift and expand our capacity to marvel at not only what God has given us in marriage, but the different aspects of his character that are often displayed and experienced in marriage. Let's talk a little bit about the structure of the Song of Solomon. Well, the structure uh, in Song of Solomon is somewhat cyclical. We often, it often, we often find a description of either the man or the woman, and then an expressed desire to be with that person. They're talking about what their beloved is like, or describing themselves and how they are waiting and ready and eager and longing to be with their beloved. One person, one teacher comments, this book in many ways reads like a Shakespearean romance drama, except unlike Shakespeare, there's no murder and no one commits suicide. Aren't you glad? This is even better, even better than some of the, the works of love and poetry that our cultures have created. So again, there's two ways to read it, as we mentioned earlier. You can read it as a unified whole. And if you read it as a unified whole, if you read Song of Solomon as one story about two characters this unified narrative, then you'll have a few different sections. Uh, chapter 1 all the way up through chapter 3, verse 5 could be described as the courtship period. There's this patient waiting that's mingled with longing. <clears throat> you see that chapter 1 up through chapter 3, verse 5. The following section would be the ceremony and the consummation. And this would take us from chapter 3, verse 5 up through chapter 5, verse 1. As their love is celebrated, as other people are witnesses who bless and affirm their marriage, and then they come together and consummate the marriage. And then the final section would be the marriage itself, which is uh, up through the end of chapter 8. So you could sort of roughly divide it into three different sections if you take that unified narrative view, that this is one story about two characters and, and their communications and relationship with each other. But remember, there's a second way to take it, and I lean this way a little bit. 
um, that you can read this as a compilation of songs, sort of a playlist for Solomon's wedding. And if you do that, then the narrative structure and the precise identities of the two characters, like who's talking and, and what's the development between the last chapter and this chapter, if you take that view, then those, those details become a little bit less important. When each section is its own song, then what that frees you to do is rather than trying to figure out your timeline in the Song of Solomon, you can actually focus what, on what those songs are emphasizing. Different aspects of joy, anticipation, praise, delight, commitment, and, and those sort of timeless, priceless uh, expressions and values, those things rise to the surface, and they're able to take center stage. And so that's, for me, the, what's helpful about reading it that way. If you haven't read Song of Solomon in a while, just go do it this week and read it twice. It won't take you very long. It's pretty short. Read it once, looking at it as a unified whole, and then read it a second time simply as a collection of love songs and see what things sort of rise to the surface. It might be helpful for you. And again, it, it, we don't want to put our foot down and say it has to be one or the other. It's difficult to interpret. Both of those are valid ways to read the Song of Solomon. In terms of the genre, as we mentioned earlier, the Song of Solomon is wisdom literature. So what is the wisdom that this book teaches us? As we go through uh, these confessions of the bride and the groom and the expressions of desire and delight and longing and the, the choruses that are echoed by the witnesses and the onlookers, what is the wisdom that emerges? Well, very clearly, Song of Solomon reinforces what the rest of the Bible teaches that sexual intimacy is good and beautiful, but it's not to be engaged in outside of or before marriage. We see this refrain three different times in the book, do not awaken love until it pleases. We see it the first time in chapter two, verse seven. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. We see almost verbatim the same admonition of wisdom in chapter 3, verse 5. And we see it a final time. Chapter 8, verses, at the end of verse 3, verse 4. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So three different times this wisdom admonition is given to the hearers of the song, to the readers of the book. And this is wisdom. And it's wisdom that goes against what the world promotes, isn't it? The world won't give you that advice to not awaken or stir up love before the right time, meaning marriage. No, the world tells us to practice early and often, to stir up that love early, to pursue what our flesh desires. When you see this wisdom that emerges in the song, it, it compares very uh, favorably and in a parallel sense to the wisdom that we find in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, we find wisdom given to young men. My son, my son, my son. And then in the Song of Solomon, we find wisdom for the young women. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not awaken love before the right time. Solomon tells his son in the book of Proverbs, my son, I'm going to paraphrase, don't be an idiot. <laughs> Avoid this type of woman, Proverbs chapter 7. Avoid the destruction that sexual sin brings, chapter 5. And look for the right kind of woman, Proverbs chapter 31. In the Song of Solomon, we find, again, parallel wisdom. My daughter, sexual intimacy is a gift of God. It is better than you can imagine, but wait until the right time. And we need both approaches, don't we? Parents, we need both. We need warnings against destruction, and we also need a high view of marriage that 
that says this is very, very good. Just wait till the right time. The theology that is paired with this wisdom is timeless. The cult of self is the religion of our day, isn't it? People worship the self. And sex has become the preeminent act of worship in this false religion, the cult of self. That's why sex sells. That's why sex is thought of as a human right even. That's why to to, um, prohibit someone from having sex with whom or how they want, that's thought to be the ultimate blasphemy. That's the most hateful thing you can do today is oppose someone's personal sexual desires and practices. But does this mean that Christians are anti-sex? Does this mean that God is against pleasure? No, absolutely not. And again, think how important this would have been for ancient Israel. Consider the immoral pagan worship that went on all around them. They would have seen their neighbors practicing all sorts of immorality. That's why we have these chapters in Leviticus saying, don't do all of these awful things because your neighbors are doing that, but you're not to do that. You're supposed to be holy. You're supposed to be different. The law of God prohibits sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. It might have been tempting for the ancient Israelites as they read the law of Moses and they looked at their neighbors to wonder, is the God of Israel against sex and pleasure and desire? Well, no. Remember that this is God's idea. Marriage is his design. Sexual intimacy is a fruit that was to be enjoyed in the original garden prior to the fall. And God affirms and celebrates this gift. In fact, he enshrines love and intimacy in this book and the Holy Scriptures for his people. We see it in the law of Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 7. Is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. God really cared about his people rightly enjoying the gift of marriage. It was important to him. God is generous, and his yeses outnumber his noes. Remember the garden once again. There was one tree they couldn't eat from, but there was all of these abundant yeses everywhere else they looked. Song of Solomon reminds us of God's abundant yes for the married man and woman. Holiness in marriage means feasting rather than fasting. We see this in Proverbs as well. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That is a command to be intoxicated always in her love. This is God's abundant yes. And it wasn't just necessary for ancient Israel. As they looked at all the pagan worship around them, it's necessary for us today because Satan always takes God's best gifts and he seeks to distort them and corrupt them and weaponize them against God's people. And he's done that with marriage and love and sexual intimacy. We might be tempted Today, because of the world we live in, and even because of our own pasts and our own histories and our own temptations, we might be tempted to minimize marital joy. We might be tempted to minimize sexual pleasure, to say that it's not holy or it's not important or, or it's not valuable. It's not something that, that glorifies God. We might think that that's a tactic that should be used to fight against temptation and idolatry that we see all around us, but we must not do that. The key to rightly viewing sex and marriage and love is wisdom. It's not disparaging God's good gift. I think something that makes this difficult for a lot of people is shame. There's a negative view of sexual pleasure because of what's going on in the world and, again, because of our own sinful pasts. 
perhaps even because of suffering and abuse that people have experienced at the hands of others. But this book reminds us that God created us with a capacity for emotional and physical delight. We are created to not just be a soul, but to be this whole person that is body and soul. We're embodied. The Song of Solomon is filled with sensory language of touch and smell and texture and taste. And this is a gift. It's not to be suppressed. It's to be enjoyed in the right context of marriage. So don't let the enemy corrupt and take hostage God's good gifts of marriage and sexual intimacy. Because of the gospel, because it is made holy by Christ, as we embrace God's design for marriage, we too, like Adam and Eve before us, can be naked and unashamed. And our grateful enjoyment of these gifts, and this is really important, I think this is the theology of Song of Solomon, that our, our grateful enjoyment of these gifts in the right context, that glorifies God. It honors Him. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So this book holds out words of affirmation to the married. Language of longing and desire. There's no hint here of the Roman Catholic idea of celibacy being more holy than marriage. The blessing in chapter 5, verse 1, is eat, drink, be drunk with love. And this comes from the, the guests of the wedding feast. But the, the words of the guests at the wedding feast in chapter 5, verse 1, they are preserved in Scripture for us as God's voice to us. His divine blessing and stamp of approval. That's the theology of the Song of Solomon. And this theology is intensely practical. It's instructive. It's instructive to us not as a how-to manual. This is definitely not something to be plagiarized in your love letters to your wife. I don't know if you've ever told her that her nose looks like a tower, but I don't know if that's going to like really accomplish what you're hoping for. That her teeth are like a flock of newly you know, shorn sheep. So don't just plagiarize the Song of Solomon. It's not instructive in that sense. But it does offer a, a guide to right thinking. A guide to right thinking. Too often our view of marriage is, is shaped by selfishness and the world's distortions rather than God's creative intentions. And again, we don't really have time to exposit the whole book, but I just want to pull out a few, um, a few identifying markers we find in this book. That this book's approach to marriage and sexuality is marked, first of all, by tenderness and care, mutual honor, and honest praise. That's instructive. That our marriages, too, must be marked by tenderness, care, mutual honor, and honest praise. Song of Solomon, again, gives us a glimpse of love and romance as it ought to be when it's unstained by sin and conflict and selfishness. Song of Solomon instructs us in that it portrays a love that is exclusive and permanent. We see language throughout the book, I am his and he is mine. Like a lily among the brambles, among the thorns, so is my beloved to me. This is the language of exclusiveness and commitment. And that is important. Our marriages, too, must reflect this exclusivity and the permanent commitment to one above all others. This book also teaches us that God-glorifying sexual desire, and I think this is very, very important, God-glorifying sexual desire is not a desire for pleasure. It is a desire for a person. Think about that. 
God-glorifying desire is not just desire for an experience. It's a desire for a person. Again, read through this book, and it is intensely personal. It is connected to this person, the other that, that the lover is enamored with. Pornography and promiscuity reduce sex to the, to the pursuit of an experience. That's what immorality does. That's what sexual sin does, is it dilutes and, and minimizes sex down to chasing after a few momentary, a, a momentary experience of pleasure. That's actually dehumanizing. That's using another person, not loving them. But God glorifying sexual desire, as we see it in the Song of Songs, is a desire not for pleasure. It's a desire for a person, and great pleasure is part of that. But this desire that fills the Song of Solomon does not dehumanize the other. When these lovers talk about each other, they are honoring the one that they love, not using them selfishly. Song of Solomon is instructive also in the sense that it upholds passionate love as something God delights in. Many of us are familiar with 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul teaches that regular sexual intimacy is what, is what God commands for married believers, that there are mutual rights and mutual duties, that the wife, uh, that her body belongs to her husband, and the husband, his body belongs to his wife, and there is this mutual duty that's there. But this doesn't mean that the approach that honors God is, well, honey, you know, it's the first Friday of the month, so you know, you know what that means. No, that's not the picture of marital love and joy that's, that's depicted in Song of Songs. Empty and boring sex as a purely biological function is nowhere near what God designed and nowhere near what God desires for marriage. Again, this is the ideal. This is what honors God. None of us probably lives this out perfectly, but this shows us what we're to aim at. And it shows us what God delights in and what God designed. Just a few words of application as we close. What does this book have for those who are young? I know we have some in the room who are not married yet. Well, the message of the Song of Solomon to you is patience and then passion. Patience and then passion. The wisdom of this song is not to keep the young away from sex with scare tactics. No, there's no scare tactics here in the Song of Solomon. The logic of the Song of Solomon is this gift is amazing, but wait until the time is right. So patience and then passion. A high view of marriage, a high view of sexual intimacy will actually help you to be pure and help you to wait. And I think for those of us who are married, one of the best apologetics for sexual purity is pure and passionate Christian marriage. The young people, the single people in our church ought to look at us and be encouraged and be inspired by what they see in our marriages. This has wisdom for the single a right celebration of sex and love and all of its goodness. Chapter 5, verse 1 shows us that even those who are not participating in this marriage actually find joy in it. The guests at the wedding feast celebrate what they see. So let me encourage those of you who are single to rejoice with those who rejoice. Reject cynicism. It's really a bad, a bad self-protection mechanism uh, against envy and discontentment. That might be the temptation. You're not married. You want to be. It's difficult to wait. And so it might be tempting to, to try to minimize the glory of marriage and the goodness of sexual intimacy. And maybe that'll make it easier. But that's not what we're instructed to do in this book. That's a poor self-defense mechanism. 
I would also urge you, be careful not to idolize human romance. Christ is the one whose love is more perfect, more satisfying, more loyal, more permanent than even the love of these lovers in the Song of Songs. And by grace, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, you can say today, I am his and he is mine. If you have Christ, you have enough. What wisdom must be applied for the married couple? Well, the young women are told over and over again in this book not to stir up love or awaken love before the time. But what about when it is time? Well, I think the the logical conclusion is, well, then such love is to be stirred up. Such love is to be awakened. And this book was given to us to inspire us to do exactly that. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of attending a wedding. Maybe you've been married for decades. And seeing two other people express their love and make these vows and commitments That warms your heart, doesn't it? And it renews your gratitude for your own marriage. And it inspires and motivates you to live out your wedding vows. I think the Song of Solomon, reading it, should have the same effect on us. It's like attending a wedding that helps us remember the joy and the passion of love. And this song helps us remember a few key things. Number one, that human love is to be an exercise in praise. Married people, human love is to be an exercise in praise. Throughout this book, we see both public and private words of affirmation and honor. That's instructive for us. Secondly, human love is to be exclusive. It is praise and desire for one above all. That must mark our marriages as well. And then lastly, human love is to be communicated verbally, but also physically by both parties. Young or old, marriage is meant to include these elements, honest praise, exclusive commitment, and verbal and physical affection. So what if our love doesn't look like that? Well, this book reminds us that it's meant to. It's meant to. Some people give up on this vision for marital love, but I'm convinced that it's not busyness and it's not age that quenches that flame. It's sin, it's selfishness, it's bitterness, it's neglect of our marital duties to pursue and serve and love our spouse. So perhaps reading the Song of Solomon, if you'll do that exercise this week, perhaps it should move us to repentance if we don't see ourselves in its drama at some level. I'd like to close just by reading from chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. I think these words wrap it up better than I could. This is a climactic statement. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. I hope the wisdom of the Song of Solomon will inspire you and instruct you and move you towards gratitude at God's gracious gift to us.